Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Today, we are joined by our guest host, filmmaker Heather Lenz. She's a filmmaker best known for Kusama Infinity, a feature-length documentary about artist Yayoi Kusama that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and received international distribution. A native of Washington, D.C., Jenny Waldo graduated from USC's School of Cinematic Arts with an MFA in film production, where she won a directing scholarship and focused on writing, directing, and producing scripted and documentary films. She recently completed the feature film Acid Test, a coming-of-age rebellion story fueled by riot girl music, a dysfunctional family, and LSD. While not making films, she teaches filmmaking and is the program coordinator at Houston Community College's filmmaking program. So happy to have both of you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Claire. Yeah, and thank you, Jenny, for being here, taking time out of your schedule to chat with us. Um, So for anyone who hasn't seen your movie yet, which is just making its way into the world now, could you uh, summarize it a bit for us? Yeah, so it's uh, about a teenage girl who is kind of on the cusp of adulthood in her senior year of high school, trying to decide kind of what the future holds. And she's been on this kind of path to Harvard, you know, and uh, she gets inspired by Riot Girl music and this, it kind of opens her eyes to some of the dysfunction in her family and, uh, you know, the kind of this idea of the patriarchy and she starts seeing some of the things in her father and in the dynamics of her family that kind of really start rubbing her the wrong way and so she, uh, and then she also, as part of self-discovery, she uh, takes acid and that kind of opens up her mind even more. And so she kind of stumbles into this rebellion and this, uh, you know, against her family and uh, and it kind of unravels uh, the path that she's been kind of on since she was a child. And so it's really this, just this coming of age story about the, you know, family and and, you know, the power of, of music and trying to figure things out and the mistakes that we make uh, at that age. Well, thank you. That's helpful. You mentioned Riot, Riot Girl music. For anyone who isn't familiar with that, could you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, Riot Girl music was started in the early 90s, and it's now called Third Wave Feminism for anyone who studies it. Uh, But it was a group of kind of women in punk. Uh, Most prominently was the band Bikini Kill. And it was this very politicized punk music about 
being a woman in the world and, you know, what it meant to be a girl and a woman. And it was kind of pushing the boundaries of some of the stereotypes of what it means to be a girl and a woman. And it was exposing and discussing and kind of raging against um, a, the kind of male dominated society and the politics that come out of it. And so, um, you know, I was a teen in the Washington DC area and Bikini Kill was based there at the time. And, and so I got to see it, you know, and, and be a part of it when it first started. And it really was this, just this revelation for me. And, uh, and the movie is based on, on my own teenage experiences. So it was, it really just was this lightning rod moment of seeing girls and women talk about, you know, wanting to be anything that they wanted to be, but also kind of what are the systematic uh, elements that are kind of keeping them in, in, in a, in the place, in a kind of a lower place than they wanted to be. So, or within a box. Yeah, that's, that's very helpful. The movie starts with a lead character writing um, in her journal and um, as part of the opening credits writes that the movie is based on true events but then she changes it to based on my memories. Could you talk a little bit about your decision to blend fact and fiction? Sure. It is based on true events. And as I was writing it, and certainly, you know, being a a woman in my 40s now and looking back on that time in my life, you start realizing how much, your perspective is is your perspective and somebody else going through those same experiences has a different perspective and, and might have a different kind of truth coming out of it. And so I felt really strongly that, you know, as much as I wanted to say, this is the truth and this is, you know, that I kind of had to own it as, as my truth and that I also had to own the fact that this was being looked through a lens of of history and the past and how faulty memory is. I mean, if anybody is, you know, uh, knows uh, things like eyewitness testimony is about 25% accurate. It's, and there have been studies that are done. And so even in the moment, even, you know, right after an event, your memories of things can be faulty. And so I, I, kind of wanted to own all of that stuff because it it threads through in terms of the scenes by the end and and the journaling and the process that she's kind of undergoing is is this sense that we kind of have to make our own truth and kind of make our own narrative as we make our way through the world and so at all of the points I can look to and say, you know, there is a specific memory or experience that I have that that pins this in in what I consider a moment of truth. But it's also something that, you know, my reflection of it might change things. It's also being narrativized, which changes things. It's also being embodied by actors and adapted to, you know, 
to kind of their truth and, and combining those things. So there are just so many elements to it that fictionalize it. And so I, I just kind of wanted to make that part of this journey. Yeah, and the main character, in spite of all these things you just said, has the same first name as you, Jenny. <laughs> and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your um, that decision. Did you ever consider changing her name? And also, what was it like to cast someone to play the role of Jenny? I, I thought about changing the name, uh, yes. And... And and these are all the kind of different creative decisions that you consider, especially when things are are based in something true. Um, and and there was an element to the fact that I I really wanted to anchor this film in in kind of my truth, so to speak, because of in a way, so many of the adaptations that were happening, I kind of wanted to, to give it that weight. Uh, I, you know, for, for whatever reason. And at the same time, I changed the names for everybody else involved because I, I, again, I just wanted it to, I wanted to own the fact that this was kind of like my, take on things and wasn't necessarily anybody else's truth. Uh, It was a little strange to cast all of these characters to a certain extent because everybody knew it was based on my life and my, my family. And, um, and especially in directing the actors, you know, some actors wanted to know a little bit more about, you know, what my experience was or what my parents were really like or things like that. Um, But at the same time, it was a lot easier than I thought it would be. Juliana DiStefano, who plays Jenny, was just an immediate standout uh, choice for me. She sent in a, a videotape. She's originally from the Houston area but had moved to Los Angeles to pursue acting and she sent in a tape and we were doing a process of both, you know, live local Houston auditions as well as uh, taped auditions from, you know, around the country. And as soon as I saw her videotape for the short film version that we had done initially, uh, I was like, this is, this is it. This is, I, I just wanted to watch her. I found her really captivating and, you really do have to separate yourself as a writer and as a director, even when you're working with personal content, you have to separate yourself from it and put on your writer hat and your director hat and and look at it as a movie. And so to that extent, the personal nature of it, um, it, it doesn't feel as personal to that extent um, because I kind of had to start looking at it as what's best for the movie, what's best for the story. Um, Yes, certainly I'm going to have a certain bias because it's mine, but I I tried to be as aware of that as possible. 
Well, I agree. She's a great choice, and I agree with everything you said about her being just, you know, fun to watch on screen and everything. She's quite talented, and the film in general has a diverse cast, and I wonder if you could also just talk a little bit more about, you know, how you approach that and your thoughts on that. Yeah, diversity is something that I feel very strongly about, Uh, certainly being a female filmmaker, uh, you know, where there aren't as many female filmmakers in our industry is something that is important to me, you know, from, uh, you know, certainly a hiring perspective. And uh, I also think it's important to showcase uh, more stories and, and showcase more diversity on screen. And I have always been a very open uh, and collaborative director, even back in our days at USC, Heather. And, um, and so I'm always interested in this collaborative approach towards a performance where, again, we're taking my understanding, you know, even if it's a completely non-personal story, we're taking my understanding of these characters and what I think is true and relevant and you're kind of mixing it with what the actor is bringing from their perspective about what is true and relevant and finding kind of something out of that. And so I had to think about what were the most important things to me about these characters in terms of casting. And so for me, I was, my mother is an immigrant. She's, she's from Czech, the Czech Republic. And it was important to me to maintain that immigrant status because there was something about the growing up with a parent who has created a, a certain kind of otherness in my life and in my identity where my home life looked a little bit different, sounded a little bit different um, than my, you know, fellow American friends uh, and many of them also had you know parents or you know situations that kind of made their lives slightly different than I guess what you see on television and all that and so that was important to me and but I kind of didn't really care about where that you know what that country was or what that kind of culture was because I felt like we could find some kind of common common ground in terms of what I was trying to explore and and somehow maintaining my ownership of it as a story that I could say, you know, is based on true stories as well as their ownership of it um, and kind of providing the context of their culture and perspective and upbringing. And uh, so we cast Mia Ruiz as the mother. And it's funny because my husband, every time he watches her in the movie, he's always like, she just reminds me so much of your mother. You know, her mannerisms, the way that she's behaving and her facial expressions, there are so many things about her that spoke to me about my own kind of sense of my mother and so she felt also just like a perfect fit but she comes you know she has a Mexican heritage and so we had to kind of find ways and and Juliana has 
Latino roots uh, as well. And so we were kind of trying to find ways to incorporate that into the the truth of the movie. And, you know, I've got friends um, and, you know, a production designer and, you know, people who were kind of there to kind of help make it, make sure that we were kind of walking this really interesting blended line between, you know, what's true for me and what's true for you and where, you know, how can we meet in the middle so that something still feels representative. And um, I'm sure that we missed the mark on some things or, you know, certainly can't speak to everyone with this kind of background. And I think that's the uniqueness of all stories is that, you know, we all have different perspectives, even if we're coming from the same place. So uh, so that kind of led to that. And then I also wanted to, the best friend character, wanted to make sure that we were showcasing diversity. We did set the film in Houston where we were shooting it. And so, you know, Houston is the most diverse city in the U.S. And it has, has a history of diversity. And uh, especially with Vietnamese, I think it's like the third most spoken language here in the Houston area. So, um, we, you know, we happened to find a, a great actress, Mai Lee, but we saw a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds audition for that role. And we could have gone in any number of different directions because there's just such a, a beautiful diversity here and a, and a depth of talent uh, in our actors. So, so, yeah, it was just really important to me to be able to showcase that and, uh, and, and put that on, on screen. And then our, our crew was also incredibly diverse. Uh, well over 70% women and or people of color and um, all of our bands are LGBTQ. And so, you know, there was just, it, it was, I think to a certain extent, when you're an independent filmmaker, you're always running with, you know, limited resources and fewer resources than you really want or need. But at the same time, it's it's the only time that you really kind of have full control over some of these decisions. And I think it's just so important to make sure that, you know, you you model what you want to see in the larger industry in terms of, you know, finding that, you know, that diversity of your crew and, um, you know, running – reasonable set hours and, you know, feeding your crew and paying them and, and not kind of, uh, you know, respecting every, you know, not, not respecting, but, you know, not running people into the ground and making sure everybody's treated with respect and stuff. And so I, I really feel strongly about being able to do that at the independent level, even though sometimes it feels like, Oh God, I just, I just need more money. You know, I need more something. Well, yes, indie film is definitely challenging. And I did notice that you had a female DP and several female producers. So kudos to you for that. You've already touched on the, you know, that, that choice. So yes, I definitely noticed it. And earlier we, we talked a little bit about Riot Girl music. And I was wondering if you could talk about the music, a little bit more about the music choices in the film. Yeah, oh, and we I, and had, I had, oh, yeah. 
Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I did want to add to again for anyone who hasn't seen it since it, since it ah, such it, since it is such a new film that was for some reason a tongue twister when it shouldn't have been that the that the main character Jenny is often kind of in her room in her own world uh, listening to music and and that's a kind of escapism for her. Yes, yeah, music is uh, a critical role in the film um and certainly again was a played a critical role in my life as a teenager um and like you said, provides that escape and provides that kind of outlet for, um, you know, how you're feeling. And we started off with the band Giant Kitty, which uh, was based in Houston. Uh, unfortunately, they two of the members moved to Seattle, so the band itself split up. But uh, they came on board uh, during the short film and they just embodied the riot girl spirits uh the lead singer miriam and i really bonded over our love of of uh, bikini kill and uh, especially the front woman kathleen hannah and um and it, it was important for me to find modern day bands uh as much as this is a story that takes place in the early 90s uh, and it's certainly based on my experience uh, in the early 90s. I really did not want to make this a nostalgia film. I wanted to make this a film where the story would feel relevant and current to modern-day teens, um, kind of <laughs> borrowing, I guess, from, like, you know, Shakespeare writing historical plays, uh, but really as an allegory for what was going on in modern times. So there was, it, it was really important for me to be able to bridge that through the music. Um, and there were other choices, like one of my producers was talking about whether we were going to have smoking in the clubs and stuff. And I was like, you know what, I just don't think, we can have that, you know, I, I don't, I don't want it. I don't want to represent it. I just, uh, you know, we're just not going to do it. And, and I had, you know, somebody at one point uh, suggesting, you know, clothing items that would really kind of stand out and, and kind of be funny, like how we look back at these old photos or there are television shows like the Goldbergs, which really play up the, or, or or Stranger Things, you know, where it's like there's that nostalgia element to it. And I really did not want to have to do that. I didn't want to have to go back and license music that was maybe personal to me but wouldn't necessarily connect with a modern-day audience. And so I, um, you know, we started out with Giant Kitty, and then when we were doing the feature film, Miriam uh, from Giant Kitty, the lead singer, she uh, helped uh, basically cast the rest of our bands. And we threw a, a live concert. We uh, put together a live concert at our, at our venue where we were shooting our concert scenes, uh, which was the local bar, Dan Electro's. And uh, we basically found other... Texas-based bands that were making mu music in this kind of political 
fear. And so one of them was Faya coming out of San Antonio, which um, they've signed on uh, Blackheart's uh, record label, which is Joan Jett's record label. Pleasure Venom, which uh, has been, they're based out of Austin, and they were touring with Garbage at one point, and they've been kind of making their way uh, up. Um, And then we had a couple of smaller Houston-based bands, uh, Imposter Boys and Brit and All Gonna Die. And uh, it was just, again, it was kind of to showcase Texas as a creative center, all of our cast and crew were based in Houston uh, or Texas at the very least. And, um, and all of them were, were current bands that were kind of in this punk political sphere. And, um, and so that was, that was critical. It was critical for me to be able to do that because it helps us kind of move out of this nostalgia film and kind of retrospective and really showcase that this is stuff that is currently happening. The things that we're fighting, unfortunately, we are still fighting. We were fighting it 30 years ago and second wave feminism and first wave feminism. I mean, there are certain things that are, that have been accomplished. Yes, there has been progress made, but there are also things that we are just continually trying to fight for. So that that was an important part of how we went about, uh, finding bands. That's really interesting and very insightful. Um, and I understand your your reasons for doing that and, and wanting, you know, even though there were certain songs and music um, very important to you that you wanted modern audiences or, you know, other people of other ages to be able to connect. But I do wonder, is there a certain Riot Girl song or certain lyrics that stand out to you from the time when you were 17, 18, the age of the character in this film that, that you feel, you know, really had a impact on the, on your path at that time? Well, I think one of the songs that has certainly stood the test of time and I think was really the anthem of riot girls back in the day and, and, you know, still is, is strong is bikini kills uh, rebel girl. And uh, like the Linda Lindas just did a, a version of it uh, recently. There are young bands um, kind of coming up in this space. And I think either even Hillary Clinton used it during her campaign. Uh, I'm not sure if she had licensed it. Um, but anyways, you know, this, this song Rebel Girl is just this anthem for, um, you know, looking to other women and being like, you're the queen of my world and, and just, you know, not kind of caring about what other people think and just being authentically you. And it's got this, you know, driving drum beat to it. And it, it really is, is the anthem of the genre and, and really stuck with me, you know, throughout the years. And I've been trying to license it for the short film and the feature film forever, but you know, Bikini Kill is uh, doesn't always do that. So, but that would have been great to have gotten that one. 
Yeah. Well, I hear you. Music can be so expensive. A couple times in our conversation, you've referenced the short version of the film. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. You, you made a short version of the film before the feature. And what motivated you to explore the same topic more in depth in, in this longer feature? Yeah, back in, I think it was 2015, I had been I had been producing other people's work. I hadn't been directing for a few years. And I was, uh, you know, just trying to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. And I had a short film that I produced that went to the Cannes Short Film Corner. And while I was there at the Cannes Film Festival, of course, I, you know, took advantage of just everything that I could and I was really inspired, uh, you know, I think as as one is when you're at kind of these uh, top festivals and, and, you know, maybe you felt this way at Sundance where you're just kind of surrounded by people working at the pinnacle of your industry. And, and I really felt strongly that I needed to get back to my own voice and my own kind of exploration as a creative. And I had this story from my youth where I had dropped acid at a concert and then gone home to my parents and told them I was tripping and they freaked out, but I was still hallucinating. So it was kind of this wild family argument and, you know, during an acid trip and I thought that it would make an interesting short film. And at the same time, I had had a number of filmmaker friends who had made short films, and then that launched uh, a feature film version of it. You know, it helped them either find funds or, you know, pave the way for making a feature film. And I think as a filmmaker at least for me, and I've heard this uh, among many filmmakers, that, you know, the the question of when am I going to do a feature film is always in the back of your mind. Um, and it, it's kind of this, this goal of, you know, I need to make a feature film. It's, it feels like something that gives you that official stamp of, I am now officially a filmmaker because I have made a feature film. <laughs> and... So, you know, I still had that. I had helped other people with their feature films. I had worked on on feature films, but I had never done my own. And so I felt like my kind of wild stories from my youth with my dysfunctional family would, that there were enough story beats for a feature film. So, the idea of the feature film was always there from the very beginning, and the short film was just a way to get there. But I also knew that I had to make the short film on its own, that it, it couldn't feel like a concept piece. It couldn't feel like uh, a trailer, you know, a, a teaser to a feature film. It kind of had to live and exist and, and have integrity as a short film. And so that's you know, how it all started. And so it it became the training ground and the exploration ground for 
what we ended up doing in the feature film. And uh, so, you know, we explored a lot of different lighting techniques and, you know, lens choices, uh, visual effects choices, certainly um, our lead and, uh, and Mia, who plays the mom, uh, both stayed on from the short film to the feature. And it really did help pave the way for the feature because along the way I, you know, met more crew people and I met more uh, people who were interested in helping to fundraise. We did a crowdfunding campaign through Scene and Spark for the short film. And that helped us connect with a bunch of people who then came back and gave money for the feature film. And so, uh, so, you know, from the short film to the feature film. So it was, it was a really great way with kind of a, a low risk because it doesn't cost as much and it doesn't take as much time. So it was in a great way to kind of explore some of the things that we wanted to do for the feature film and kind of get the ball rolling. And uh, so, yeah, it was, it was a really important part of the process, but the feature film was always the end goal. And I wrote the first draft of it by the time we premiered the short film in festivals. And uh, of course, I was kind of hoping for somebody to say, this is a great film. I'll fund your feature film. And that, that didn't happen. Uh, But again, along the way we had we kind of picked up enough kind of people and resources and experience and excitement that really helped us uh get to the point with the feature where I could say, Okay, this is this is possible, let's do this. That's that's very helpful, I think, especially for filmmakers listening to hear about how doing a short can help, you know, lead to a feature. So uh, I'm wondering now if you could talk about the events depicted in the film and how they have um, impacted you as a mother and as a teacher. You've talked a little bit about your experience doing ACID, which is portrayed in the film, and of course, in society at large, there are these stories from notable people like Steve Jobs of Apple talking about his experience um, doing acid and how it impacted him creatively and so forth. And also in the news quite a bit these days are stories of microdosing and uh, microdosing LSD and how that's being used to treat PTSD and stuff like that. So I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about um these experiences in terms of how they 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 affect your life now. Yeah, it is really interesting because when I started this with a short film back in 2015, uh, Bikini Kill hadn't hadn't come out and and said they were doing their reunion tour. This stuff about microdosing and uh, you know LSD and psilocybin with the you know magic mushrooms and none of that stuff was in the Right, guys. So it's kind of funny because, I mean, it's great in the sense that we're all kind of emerging at the same time, and hopefully that will help the film as well uh, because people are talking about it. I think from a personal aspect, you know, I am a mother of teens, and my teens are the age of the character, you know, or are coming into the age of of 
of what she's going through in the movie and they've all seen the film. Um, my, uh, my kids, it's, I think we've always been very open to a certain extent of the mistakes of the past, because I do feel like one of the things that personally was difficult about writing this script was that it did uh, bring me back to a time that was really difficult for me personally and was difficult for me with my family. And, and a lot of those things for better or worse are unresolved. You know, we just kind of moved on and, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in, therapy and openly talking about things and whereas my parents are a little bit more uh, traditional in the kind of you just buck up and 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 get through it you know and so I um, so it's an interesting thing because I feel like I am parenting so much from a position of how I wish I could have been parented at this time. And to a certain extent, there are elements in Acid Test, the movie, which are a bit of wish fulfillment by the end of it, you know, where where there are conversations that happen that I wish had happened, you know, where I wish there was a little bit more of a frank, uh, a frank conversation about what was going on. Um, and that, that just, doesn't it doesn't even happen to this day it's kind of like nobody ever references any of these things um in the past and so um so yeah it's interesting i think my kids look at the movie and go (laughs) uh man you are really screwed up and i never i never i'm not like you and i don't want to do that and i'm like well thank god but (laughs) thank you Well, that's great. I guess I feel good about that. But they also have their own challenges. And, and I think there's, there's, again, a a certain amount where I really wanted to make sure that the things that I felt were a struggle at the time are universal struggles as teenagers to a certain extent. And I wanted to make sure that it that they felt that, that it resonated with them on some level. And, and I think that it did. They were kind of, to a certain extent, my tense audience for, for the film and for, you know, modern day teenagers. So it does affect um, me as a parent in the sense that I have something out here that for everybody to see to kind of, uh, whether you view it as a cautionary tale or uh, something to connect with, uh, your teenager, um, you know, I, I do think there are elements of that. Certainly as a teacher, as a filmmaking teacher, I have a, a whole lot more personal experience with making a feature film than I did when I helped produce other people's feature films. It's just much more visceral and detailed when it's actually your own project. And certainly getting into the distribution element of how to get this to a broader audience beyond festivals. I had never really experienced that with any of my other projects um, that I had kind of helped more than just kind of as a, 
a consultant, you know, somebody to kind of bounce ideas off of. So navigating all of this, it, it definitely is giving me a lot more, uh, you know, direct experience with that. Well, it's always great to get, you know, more experience. Um, so you, you've touched a little bit on your family dynamic. I am curious um, if you could share what the reaction to the, to the movie has been. My parents, as far as I know, they have not <laughs> seen the film yet. Um, Interesting. They, I, I, they sent, I sent them the link. Uh, they were traveling when we premiered, and uh, you know we they don't live in the Houston area, so um, you know the places that we've screened at, they have not been able to attend. They saw the short film, and they. You know, I remember the short film ended and my dad turned to me and was like, that was great. And uh, and then he also proceeded to say that he didn't really like the actor who played the dad character. And, and, and it was just kind of, again, it was one of those weird moments where kind of art and real life are, are blending in ways that feel like my brain is breaking a little bit. But um, my parents have generally they've been very supportive of the project and and i think to a certain extent they uh i i think it, to a certain extent it doesn't really matter what the project is because they want to support my career and my uh my art and all of that and and given the dynamics of my family and the adaptations and the choices that were made to a certain extent I'm not even sure they would recognize themselves in the film or recognize the the moments of truth uh, that are there um, I, I think there's you know there just is in their lens of memory and looking back on things the things that were important to me coming out of it may not have been important to them and so I think there's a an interesting discussion that could be had. But as I mentioned earlier, my family is not really, um, doesn't really do that, you know? And uh, so we'll see. My brother has seen it. He's seen it a few times now, and he's uh, been also very supportive. I think he, in many ways, uh, I remember when he read the script, he felt a little sick <laughs> and uh, he he had said at one point that he didn't want to watch the film with our parents in the room that it just made him uncomfortable um, and so you know and, and maybe people who have artists in their family or, or you know maybe your family members feel similarly when things touch on those kind of real life aspects. I think my family kind of looks at me and is like, well, that's just, that's just Jenny. Like that's just what she's going to do. And they, they're there for me regardless, which I think is a, a wonderful thing. And, um, and, you know, despite our difficulties, I think that is something that has allowed us to maintain a relationship through those difficulties over the years is that at the end of the day, 
we do love and care about each other and only want the best. And we might think the best looks a certain way or should be done in a certain way. And, um, but you know, it still is, um, good intentions ultimately. Yeah. And could you please talk a little bit about the most challenging part of being an independent filmmaker as well as the most rewarding part? And I'm going to group a few things together here and also specifically how you funded this film. How did the funding come together? So I'll start with the funding. We had, as I said, with the short film, we had kind of accumulated people along the way that were supportive of our film. And by the time I was ready to go with the feature or had a script that I felt was kind of good enough, you know, you always face these these decisions which are, do I keep developing this? Do I try applying for another lab? Do I try, you know, finding a, a bigger name actor? Like how much of that development process do you want to invest in? Because it does take money and it does take time. And at a certain point, I, I felt like the script was starting to affect my relationship with my parents in the sense that it was making me revisit these difficult things. And I was having a little bit of a harder time separating from it uh, when I was writing it. And I also had a window of time from my job at Houston Community College where I knew I had to teach a five-week summer class. And uh, the program, the filmmaking program has done this in the past where they'll take classes and they'll use them as uh, kind of production support for other other projects or for, you know, independently financed films outside of the program. And so I asked my chair whether I could use my five-week summer class to teach an elective where students would work as PAs uh, and learn you know, gain valuable set experience uh, and network with the professionals that we had hired as department heads. And I got the approval. So that kind of gave us a window of time to shoot the film. And so that just, those two things, kind of needing to transition from, from the writing of it and the developing of it and start going into production and having that window in my schedule really pushed fundraising because I uh, felt really strongly based on the themes and the politics and uh, the, the diversity of our cat, you know, the cast and the crew that we had in mind and the uh, students that we were, we were bringing on board, bringing an educational component. I really felt like this was a strong, case for getting fiscally sponsored by a nonprofit, which I had done in the past for short films. And, uh, and, you know, I'm very familiar with the process. And so I was looking for a nonprofit that would be able to bring us under their umbrella and from the heart productions was recommended to me by a fellow filmmaker. And I just jumped on the chance I had certainly applied in the past for the Roy Dean 
uh, grants that they offer and was already familiar with the organization. But, um, you know, having a filmmaker friend who had used them before was, was definitely helpful. And so I applied and they accepted. And by this point, I felt like I had enough people who could donate at, you know, for that tax incentive, donate at kind of a large amount for that tax incentive. And so when you're looking at raising, you know, we needed to raise about $50,000 for production. And so when you're looking at raising that amount and you say, I know five people who can give me 10 grand, that's very different than when you're crowdfunding and you're like, I need, you know, 10,000 people to give me 50 bucks or something, you know, or it's or five bucks. So it, it just, the, the numbers, the math works out better when you, when people can donate at a larger level and it's certainly better for them from the tax perspective because they're going to get a bigger kickback on their taxes when they donate. So I had, you know, a handful of people that I felt would donate at a large level. So I, again, I felt like fiscal sponsorship was a good fit for a variety of reasons. I also did not feel comfortable having the investor talk where I would promise to repay someone their investment plus, you know, 30% return on investment. I just felt like in the world of independent filmmaking, from what I've seen from my fellow filmmakers, as well as, you know, everything that I've read, the idea that you're going to make money on your independent film is zero. There's a 0% chance that you're going to make money or it's very, very, very low. And I'm a firm believer uh, in, in practicality, and I certainly incorporate this into my teaching, where, you know, I tell my students, buying a lottery ticket is not a business plan. You know, so sure, do you hope that you're going to be the outlier and, you know, get into a top festival and get nominated for an Oscar and, you know, get funded for this and that and the other. Sure. I mean, I, I hope for that, but I can't plan for it. There's, there's no way that I can plan for that because I just, I'm not at that level. I don't have those resources. So, um, so that's how we fundraised and we fundraised really quickly because everything kind of came together in, in about three months. And, um, but again, I think the, the work that we had done setting things up in place along the way, uh, starting with the short film really helped us kind of get it together very quickly. So, uh, so yeah, so I got the green light for the five week summer course in December. Uh, we were fiscally sponsored by From the Heart by February. That was all kind of up and running by February. We had a March 15th deadline to get, you know, 30% of our funds that we needed to kind of green light by March 15th. And by that point, we knew we were, we were going to get there. So then it all just became about making sure we had the crew and the locations and everything in place to start shooting. I think June 2nd was our start date. Um, that's so. Uh, so yeah, that's sorry, very question. Helpful. What is challenging, yeah. challenging and rewarding? Um, yeah. 
Honestly, I feel we have about five minutes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So just quickly, I think one of the most challenging parts for me as a filmmaker is always the waiting part. So when you're on set and you're waiting for your camera and your grip and your gaffer to get everything ready. And then when you're in post-production, you're waiting for edits or color grades or music or whatever. Um, and then waiting for festival submission, that to me is the most challenging aspect. I am learning a lot about distribution going through that, and that certainly is also challenging because there's been a lot of money that I've put into the project just to present it to distribution companies, and I wasn't really aware of that part of, of it and kind of wasn't quite expecting it. And since there is very little money and there are very few upfront funds that distribution companies will give you when you're in this kind of small independent world, um, that can be debilitating when you're just about ready to get your film out there. So I've, I've had to have kind of a bit of a reality check in the last couple of months to make sure I don't take all of this kind of good planning and good budgeting and throw it out the window at the very last minute. Um, But the rewarding part has certainly been making the film and the relationships that I've made out of it. Uh, We had a wonderful cast and crew. We had a wonderful time. I think every filmmaker wants to feel like the people want to work with them again is one of the greatest compliments. And I certainly felt that way that we, really developed a very strong film family and people that I have and would work with again. And so that's, uh, and, you know, certainly getting the film and having, uh, we had a wonderful premiere, in-person premiere at Austin Film Festival and getting to see it with a packed audience and having those responses of people saying that they felt seen and that they, that they learned something new or it opened their eyes to things that's all of that's been just incredible. So, Jay, what well, that that's terrific. I have so many more questions I'd like to ask you, but since we're running out of time, I want to make sure that you do have um, a moment here to tell us your website, the social media handle that um, any social media handles you want to share, whether for the film or personally, any hashtags you're using, things like that, so people can follow along. And I understand you have a screening coming up, so if you'd like to mention that as well, you could. Great. Yeah, the film website is acidtestfilm.com. And my personal website uh, to kind of see other things that I'm doing is JennyWaldo.com, Jenny with a Y. And uh, similarly on uh, social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, Acid Test Film, and Jenny Waldo. And uh, so, you know, I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, In terms of hashtags, we've been using Acid Test as a hashtag. I've also been using Activist Filmmaker or activist filmmaking, especially during production, because, again, I feel really strongly about the the choices that we were making and the, the, you know, walking the walk of what we want to see in the industry. And uh, we are having an upcoming screening this week. I fly out tomorrow for Durango, Colorado. We'll be part of Durango's Independent Film Festival. 
and we screen Thursday and Saturday. And then we've got a, a couple of more festivals coming up in the spring that we know of for sure that I can't really say anything about. And, uh, and hopefully we'll have distribution in place for later this year. So, um, so yeah, definitely keep an eye out for Acid Test. Follow us along on uh, social media. Check out our website. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always really open, especially as a film educator, for people to reach out and send me an email, uh, you know, connect through whether it's uh, social media or the website. So I really, uh, you know, don't, don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. This was so helpful, and I appreciate you sharing all your wisdom and obstacles you had to overcome and and all of these things, which are so helpful for other um, independent filmmakers to learn from. So, And thank you, Claire, for uh, helping us today. Yes, it it was a great pleasure. And uh, Yes, Jenny. And, you know, I concur with uh, what Heather just said about – your stories, your experiences, how much they help the rest of us. Um, so thank you. It was it was great to hear the you know the authenticity that you have to share about your own personal experiences and uh, what they can help us all move forward in as well. So thank you very much. Well, it was a lot of fun. I right. appreciate it. Yeah, thank you both, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Yeah, thank you. All right. Be well, everyone. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer, legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.